Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 179. Today's big Bible question is, does Satan know the Bible? And if he does, how does he use it? So, hello, friends. Happy Wednesday to you. I hope you're staying safe out there. It seems like the uh, danger level is kind of increasing day by day. And I am grateful in the midst of that that God is our refuge and an ever-present help in a time of need. Today's Bible passages are Deuteronomy 29, Psalms 119, 49-72, Isaiah 56, and Matthew chapter 4, which is our focus passage. Now, before we get to our focus passage, a word or two needs to be said about Isaiah 56, because there is a fantastic promise made in that passage to foreigners. And I know you're probably thinking right now, wait a minute, I'm not a foreigner. Well, actually, (laughs) you are a foreigner unless you were born in Israel, because, you know, the Old Testament written to the Jews, not born in Israel, you're a foreigner, I'm a foreigner, most of us are foreigners. So there's this great Old Testament promise that is in Isaiah 56 to most of us who are listening to the podcast, and it's about being invited at the end times into the house of prayer that God is going to make. So this is one of my favorite promises in the Bible. And tomorrow we're going to get into Isaiah 57, which is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, But for now, let's go ahead and read Isaiah 56, uh, just putting it first so you can go ahead and hear that promise. Then we'll get to our focus passage and our focus question. This is Isaiah 56, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right, for my salvation is coming soon, and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, Look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. As for the foreigners, that's us, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. All you animals of the field and forest, come and eat. Israel's watchmen are blind, all of them. They know nothing. All of them are mute dogs. They cannot bark. They dream, lie down, and love to sleep. These dogs have fierce appetites. They never have enough, and they are shepherds who have no discernment. All of them turn to their own way, every every last one for his own profit. Come, let me get some wine. Let's guzzle some beer, and tomorrow will be like today, only far better. So, getting back to our focus passage and our focus question, it is inspired by the scripture duel, I guess you could call it, Jesus and Satan have during the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Now, it needs to be seen clearly here that Satan is using scripture against the Son of God. Now, can you imagine? That seems like a really bad strategy to me. 
the word made flesh probably will be able to do pretty well in a scripture battle. Uh, and so I take from that, if Satan has the temerity and the audacity to try that tactic with Jesus, then we should be very sure that he will try it with us too. Now let's go read Matthew 4 now and see how the enemy twists the word in an attempt to tempt the Son of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor, and he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So one word really quick here. I made a decision somewhere towards the end of reading through the New Testament first. If you've noticed, if you've been following this podcast for a while, um, I sometimes do voices for people. And when we went through the Gospels earlier, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I had this sort of deep, solemn, hopefully thoughtful voice for Jesus. But, you know, quite frankly, it was not very good. And when I read the voice of God from time to time in the Old Testament, I would have as deep a voice as I could possibly go. Well, let's just say I became a little bit convicted by that. So going forward, I might still do some voices, especially for, you know, colorful characters, bad guys, Pharisees, and people like that. But I'm going to avoid, I think, doing voices for Jesus and God 
primarily because I'm just not adequate for that. I mean, I can make my voice a little bit deeper, but I don't even want to try because I don't want to give any sort of impression uh, that might be uh, in any way like anything. I just, just, I'm nervous about it. Let's just say that. And nervous and inadequate to even begin to have a voice for the Son of God and for God himself. So steering away from that. I may still do voices for other people if you enjoy that sort of thing. And if you don't, don't worry, I'm not going to do it a lot. So just a word about that. And let's get back to Matthew 4. And we see quite clearly here in that passage that the enemy, Satan, knows the word. He isn't afraid to speak the word. And he will use it in a deceptive and misleading way. Now, false teachers will do the same. And Second Peter chapter 2 warns us that other people will twist the word of God too. In fact, Second Peter 2.15 says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about all these things in all his letters, There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. So people will twist the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. It's been happening for thousands of years. And doing such a thing, twisting the word of God, is so dangerous, says Peter, it could actually lead to destruction. Now, when I think about ways that People over the years, and myself included, have twisted the word of God. I can think of a few possible ways that it could happen. This is not an exhaustive list, but way number one, you can twist the scripture. The most obvious way is just ignore it. Ignore parts of it that you don't like. Probably the most obvious way is to ignore the parts you don't like. Now, maybe let's take an example. Those who might want to, I don't know, divorce their wife and marry somebody much younger or whatever, uh, they might ignore the scriptures that forbid such a practice, and they might try to join up with a church that also ignores those scriptures, or at the very least never preaches about something uncomfortable like that. So that's a head-in-the-sand kind of approach that just basically ignores anything that God's Word says that is contrary to a person's desire. It is a way to twist the Word, just kind of pretend it's not there. Proverbs 8.33 says, on the other hand, listen to instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Well, the second way I can think about we humans can twist the word is we can pick and choose in the scripture. We can do a little cherry picking. That's kind of a subset of idea number one. Uh, But in this case, a person picks one or a few scriptures that seem to back up their perspective and then completely ignores other scripture. For instance, the whole thought of, I don't know, God won't judge me for doing this activity because he's patient and kind and he wants me to be happy. Well, if the Bible forbids it, yes, God wants you to be joyful. Yes, God, Jesus has come so that we would have abundant life. But that doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. We need the whole counsel of God, not just a small portion. And this is the basic attack that strategy that Satan attempted to use against Jesus. He ignored the command in the Bible to not put the Lord your God to the test, and he urged Jesus to do just that very thing by quoting a scripture that ensured that Jesus would be protected by God. So that's a bit of cherry-picking there. Well, Jesus says this to the Pharisees, and us by extension, in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, which they were supposed to do, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. In other words, they followed some of the word, ignored the bigger parts of the word. And I've seen people cherry-pick in regards to how the Bible describes the character of God. Uh, Recently, having seen more than one friend on social media completely dismiss the idea that God could ever judge or punish people because he's a God of mercy. My God is a God of mercy. He's not going to punish people. He's not going to punish us. He's not going to allow a disaster to happen. Well, yes, God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. He's both, and we will fail to see the character of God clearly if we ignore parts of how the Bible describes him. And that's cherry-picking, and it's dangerous. It basically puts you in the chair of judging who God is, and if you're going to judge who God is, you're basically making yourself out to be God. The fact of the matter is God is bigger than we are, more powerful, more wise. And the way the Word of God describes God to us, we should either, we should accept it, uh, because he is going to be as God. In some ways, we're not going to be able to understand him. In some ways, we're going to struggle with his personality. You know, we're going to struggle with some of his commands because everybody in history has done so. And the way to handle that is not to cherry pick just the ones that you like and you're okay with and don't hurt too much. But the way to handle that is to submit to the Word of God and submit to the Word of God's descriptions of God. Well, the final way, again, there's many, but the final way I thought of is we can reinterpret the Scripture, and that's a way of twisting. Examples of that sort of twisting the Word of God abound in church history and you proliferate today. You know, For instance, the Bible clearly forbids a certain thing, but some will seek to justify their doing of such a thing by something by saying something like, oh, what Paul really meant was this, or what Paul was really forbidding was this kind of thing. What I'm doing is okay, but he was talking to first century men who did this or that or whatever. Uh, Jesus wasn't talking about that thing that he was clearly saying, but some other thing that isn't relevant to me. The word of God says what it says, friends, and we got to deal with it in that way. Yeah, there are passages in the Bible that are kind of difficult to understand, and we wrestle with them. But I'll just be honest with you, the vast majority of the controversial truths that the Bible teaches that some people struggle with, they aren't really difficult to understand at all. They're not obscure. They're not difficult to wrap your head around. They're not like affected by some uh, textual variant or weird Greek word or some historical thing that doesn't really apply to us anymore. They pretty much mean what they say. And the fact of the matter is they give us heartburn. So we try to explain them away. And in doing that, we become like the enemy. We become twisters of the word. Why would the enemy seek to get us to twist the word of God? Well, I think it's because it's so important and central to our life in Christ. It's foundational, so the enemy is definitely going to attack that. So John Piper, discussing the Bible and how important it is, says this, the Bible stands at the very center of the Christian life. It's why the pulpit at our church is center of the front, and it's lifted up. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it stands before us as our guide and over us as our judge and under us as the rock and foundation of our hope. John Wesley, says Piper, wrote in the preface of his sermons, I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just 
hovering over a great gulf till a few moments hence and I am no more to be seen. I drop into unchangeable eternity. I want to know only one thing, the way to heaven. Ah, he's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Well, I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me, says Wesley. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. Piper continues, oh, that we might be a people of the book. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The apostles are united with each other and with the Old Testament in one great inspired book of God. The more we read it, the more we will see with the eyes of God. And here's Tim Keller talking about the modernist and, I guess, postmodernist tendency to reinterpret and twist the word like the enemy did so long ago in Matthew 4. Keller says, when somebody tries to reinterpret Christianity and says, ah, we need to stress the commonalities. We need to stress the fact that we all have the love ethic. Let's not talk about the resurrection or the miracles, the virgin birth and those sorts of things. That's not a more liberal kind of Christianity, says Keller. That's not a more enlightened kind of Christianity. That's a fundamental change in the very nature of the message. It's moving from being a witness to something amazing to being a philosophy. It's unfair. The resurrection of Jesus proves and shows the character of our message. And we see what Peter is saying. What Peter is saying in the word is, I saw something. I ran into the tomb and I saw the grave closed, but no body. Then later I saw him myself. He came through doors that were locked. He ate a fish. I spoke to him and saw him. Christianity does so well, says Keller, because it's about truth, about reasoning, about evidence. It's about using your brain. Christians say, don't believe this because that's your people group, that's your nationality or whatever. Believe it because it's true, and here's why. And when we twist the word of God, I would say, we get away from some of these amazing fundamental truths of the word, and I think that's what the enemy tries to do with us. He tries to get us away from the foundational bedrock truths of Christianity. One more voice to hear from. John Piper discussing the twisting of the word in relation to the core of Christianity, the resurrection. He quotes 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. Or, as it says in verse 17, your faith is worthless. Your faith is empty and useless if Christ is not raised. It's not going to do you any good. One wonders, what did they have faith in? What was their faith if they didn't believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, Paul doesn't tell us, but these were savvy, philosophical, cosmopolitan folks in Corinth who didn't like the idea of believing anything as literal and physical as the actual resurrection of Jesus' body from the dead and later the resurrection of our bodies with him. Perhaps they were like many more liberal or progressive Christians today. Perhaps their faith was that Jesus was a great teacher or that he was a good example of the way of love and that the stories of his resurrection are simply symbols pointing to the triumph of the human spirit or that his influence lives on after him. In other words, these folks in Corinth had not said this resurrection business is all a myth, so we reject it. They had said this resurrection business is all a myth, and so we reinterpreted it. It's just a symbol of God's love and the indomitable power of the human spirit, or perhaps the divine world force. Paul's response to that kind of thinking was to say, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty. 
That kind of faith has no substance. It's worthless at the end. It profits nothing. And I believe that's what my friends, the enemy was trying to do with Jesus and what he tries to do with us. Again, he tries to twist us out of the truth, the bedrock truths of our faith, of Christianity, of the word of God, because the more he twists and the more we shift away from the great foundation of the teachings of Jesus and the great foundation of the word of God, the more we're on shifting sand and dangerous sand. And when the rain comes and the floods fall, as Jesus says, we're going to be wiped out because we've moved away from the bedrock of truth to dangerous ground that's dangerous to stand on. And so I think that's the danger of twisting the word. Does the enemy know the word? You bet he does. But he tries to get us to twist it. Let us stand firm, as the Bible says, resisting him in the faith, and he will flee from us. And let us hold fast to the word of truth that points us to Jesus and that came from Jesus. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. These are the words of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in the land of Moab. In addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen with your own eyes everything the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to his entire land. You saw with your own eyes the great trials and those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. I led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes and the sandals on your feet did not wear out. You did not eat food or drink wine or beer, so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reached this place, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan came out against us in battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, observe the words of this covenant and follow them so that you will succeed in everything you do. All of you are standing today before the Lord your God, your leaders, tribes, elders, officials, all the men of Israel your dependents, your wives, and the resident aliens in your camps who cut your wood and draw your water so that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which he is making with you today, so that you may enter into his oath and so that he may establish you today as his people and he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant and this oath not only with you, but also with those who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not here today. Indeed, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and passed through the nations where you traveled. You saw their abandoned images and idols made of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which were among them. Be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt, thinking, I will have peace even though I follow my own stubborn heart. This will lead to the destruction of the well-watered land as well as the dry land. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Instead, his anger and jealousy will burn against that person, and every curse written in this scroll will descend on him. The Lord will blot out his name under heaven and every single and single him out for harm from all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses 
of the covenant written in this book of the law. Future generations of your children who follow you and the foreigner who comes from a distant country will see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses the Lord has inflicted on it. All its soil will be a burning waste of sulfur and salt, unsown, producing nothing with no plant growing on it, just like the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zeboim, which the Lord demolished in his fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to the land? Why this intense outburst of anger? Then people will answer, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, which he had made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They began to serve other gods, bowing in worship to gods they had not known, gods that the Lord had not permitted them to worship. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land, and he brought every curse written in this book on it. The Lord uprooted them from their land in his anger, rage and intense wrath, and threw them into another land where they are today. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. Psalm 119 verses 49 through 72. Remember your word to your servant. You have given me hope through it. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise has given me life. The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but I do not turn away from your instruction. Lord, I remember your judgments from long ago and find comfort. Fury seizes me because of the wicked who reject your instruction. Your statutes are the theme of my song during my earthly life. Lord, I remember your name in the night and I obey your instruction. This is my practice. I obey your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I have sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I thought about my ways and turned my steps back to your decrees. I hurried, not hesitating, to keep your commands. Though the ropes of the wicked were wrapped around me, I did not forget your instruction. I rise at midnight to thank you for your righteous judgments. I am a friend to all who fear you, to those who keep your precepts. Lord, the earth is filled with your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. Lord, you've treated your servant well, just as you promised. Teach me good judgment and discernment, for I rely on your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have smeared me with lies, but I obey your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. Instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Wow, what an ending. Worth reading again. Instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Yes, it is. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Good day to you, friends. May the word of the Lord build you up and edify you and me both. Amen. Godspeed.